Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Anthropological, where we're serving up some real-life applications for some very anthropological theories. This episode, we will be discussing the evolution of drinking, drinking trends, and as they pertain to how we consume alcoholic beverages, non-alcoholic beverages, and so on. I'm Kasira Hill, your local anthropologist, bartender, graphic designer, um, pronoun she, her, hers, and welcome. And I'm David Moore, Chicago bartender, uh, actor, and activist. And just like Kasira, I have no witty intro for myself today, but my pronouns are he, him, his. And we are joined by John DeBerry out of New York. Hi, John. Hi. Um, John, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Cool. Well, I'm, my name is John DeBerry, uh, and I am uh, the founder of founder and kind of creator of Proto, which is a line of non-alcoholic botanical drinks. Uh, I'm also a cocktail book author. I had a cocktail book come out um, in June, and I also am the founder of, of Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, which is a uh, grant-making and advocacy uh, organization to address quality quality of life issues for uh, workers in the restaurant industry. So, triple threat. That's yes, you are. <laughs> you said your and book is coming out when, love? It came out in June. Yeah, it's called oh Drink God. What You Want. Uh, it came out last month, yeah. It's great, so, by the way. And I love the, the art in it is really, it's fun to kind of skip through and it's great. Yeah, the, um, my illustrator, Sarah Tannen-Jones, is... Um, I'm very lucky that I, I found her. She's based in the UK, and yeah, we definitely hit it off. Um, That's awesome. Congrats. Thanks. Beautiful. Well, per usual, we're going to jump into a little bit of context. We're going to build off of um, some history around uh, alcohol production and the emergence of drinking in certain societies uh, like we did last week. So just to cover a little bit of bases, um, beer and wine emerged uh, about 10,000 years ago, in tandem with a lot of um, agricultural evolution. So we're talking about, uh, you know, grains, we're talking about, uh, you know, curating, curating farms and using, using what we had available there. Um, distillation emerged about 4,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, what we now understand is like Iran, Iraq, uh, Northern Africa, places like Egypt. Um, and then those uh, distilled products being used for medicinal purposes um, first, a lot of elixirs, a lot of, you know, cure-alls, a lot of tinctures and medicines. Um, when we shift into an understanding, which is where we're going to go today, about kind of the cultural evolution of how we drink, where we drink, all of that kind of good stuff, um, beer and wine was a lot more accessible um, for ancient cultures for folks that um, were non-nobility. So, you know, I noted last week that, you know, payments in grain and payments in beer in ancient Egypt were very common. Um, wine was very available. And we, you know, we like to think back to like the Greek um, folks like drinking and having their very illustrious lifestyles attached to wine. Um, when distilled products became a lot more available and the distillation process, that knowledge was kind of um, starting to spread uh, in Europe, in the Middle East, and in near places like Asia. Uh, as they became more available, drinking culture changed, especially we note um, when voyages, like big sea voyages, explorations, um, traders on the sea, including colonizers, um, use distilled products to keep water safe um, and clean, uh, drinking culture on the ships for folks that were taking these long voyages, colonizers and traders, uh, they drank a lot. Um, they drink a lot on the, on the, on the seas. And so when we shift into a conversation about those kind of, um, cultural influences specifically noted when we can get a lot more information about that is a little bit more recent. So, uh, traders and colonizers in the Americas would use, um, distilled products, rum and stuff that's all very associated with, um, the colonial efforts, um, in North America. They would trade those with indigenous folks, um, you know, as they stole their land and, uh, you know, drinking distilled products was kind of introduced to um, indigenous folks in North America in a different way. Um, 
when uh, specifically for Native Americans in the United States, uh, Congress actually passed a law in the early 1800s that uh, outlawed the sale of alcohol to um, Native Americans. And that law actually wasn't even repealed until 1953. So when it comes to you know where alcohol was available, where um, distilled products were available, specifically um, in the United States, there's a lot of context around uh, context around you know when we were allowed to drink, who was allowed to drink. A lot of minority um, folks in the United States, we're talking about like indigenous folks, black folks, experienced uh, prejudice and sometimes, like I'm saying, outlaws of being able to get alcohol because um, the restrictions around the availability for such products were usually tied to a restriction of a population of people. So when we start talking about the prohibition, and what led up to that, the ideologies that led up to that, um, there was a lot of fear mongering around, uh, you know, black people drinking and being like a menace to society or there's stigma, there's stigmatism or I'm sorry, there's, you know what I'm saying. Um, there's all of that around Native American folks and, you know, alcoholism and all of that. Um, countries like South Africa and a couple of others often would outlaw alcohol consumption, um, either attached to religion or attached to um, restricting a certain a certain population of people. So when we talk about ideologies and cultural shifts around um, alcohol, either be it ancient society or even a little bit more recent in the United States, it's usually attached to either trade or a restriction of a certain population of people that are unwanted or um, in general trying to be marginalized um, by a larger by a larger group. Um, so as we talk about you know drinking trends, I want to lay that down because the restrictions around alcohol in modern day have been often very associated with you know who is allowed to have that kind of frivolity in their life, who has access to spaces of recreation and who has access to um, trade or even making their own income attached to distilling products or making beer and wine and stuff like that. Um, so that's kind of the layout that we're gonna go with there, laying the groundwork and we'll shift into our questions. Yeah, uh, so you, it's a good transition because we're gonna start talking about drinking trends and generally how they've evolved. And uh, like, Kasira, you obviously have a lot more historical and anthropological context than I do. I'm only speaking for my few years as a bartender, but the general- right. I'm trying to keep it tight too. I'm I love trying to it. like- no. <laughs> it, was, it was strong. Uh, but the general way that I have viewed like drinking trends evolving, I feel like it's always something that happens within the bar industry first and then the masses sort of hear about it um, a couple years later. And I feel like, especially when I started going to bars a, a little younger than 21 was the the really big like for net and a beer kind of trend for a while and how it was sort of associated with uh this idea of like knowledge and and place in the industry like if you knew about this you really got what this industry is all about and this was also going around the same time when major cocktail trend like craft cocktails were uh, having this big resurgence and where it was um, also getting to be more about the bartender than the bar. There was, I feel like, a lot that happened in the 2010s that are, that have sort of, like, weaved in together. Um, but the purpose of this is to talk also about how we've evolved into, like, non-alcoholic drinking culture and where that started coming to play. And what we were talking about last week with Ben was about the wellness movement and how essentially, like, the launching and the marketing of wellness really helped influence the huge surge of non-alcoholic drinking culture or like the sober curious movement, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but it has helped create essentially a category that is very popular, very profitable and constantly growing and evolving and, and changing its kind of style. Um, so I want to bring John, you into this, but what have you, I mean, you obviously launched Proto in the last, when, did you launch it in 2018? Last fall, in 2019. Okay, um, yeah. but before that, did you already see a shift in drinking culture within bars that you made you sort of inspired to want to do that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I started um, my, like, astonishingly, my first bartending job was at PDT, which is a cocktail bar in the, 
in the East Village, um, kind of like <laughs> leapfrogged into like kind of the center of it. And it was around like 20, 2008. So it was like the beginning of this craft cocktail um, sort of renaissance. Um, and it was very much sort of a, an insider kind of chefy cool kid club uh, for a while with the whole, the whole scene. Um, and it was very much, you know, the, the idea of something non-alcoholic being served at a bar, like a cocktail bar in, in, in New York City was not even like rejected. It just wasn't even considered. Um, and uh, for me, I always um, like to kind of play around with drinks, like non-alcoholic cocktails, like not for the menu at PDT, but sometimes like I had a few up my sleeve that I would, that I would bust out for people if and when they would um, ask for something non-alcoholic. And that was sort of the first, um, like my, I guess my own exposure to the concept of like a cocktail that just didn't have alcohol in it for like whatever reason. Um, and whatever ingredient that wasn't, you know, like an alcohol-based uh, liquid. So um, I did it for, a f I thought about it for a few reasons. One, because I think it's really challenging to create a, like a credible cocktail that doesn't contain alcohol for like a lot of reasons, both like technical, like alcohol is a great substrate for flavor. It mixes really well. It's stable. Um, people enjoy drinking it generally. Like it makes you feel different and people generally get value out of that. But also, um, uh, like the flavors that you can work with with alcohol are so you know are so vast and so varied um, that it's just like if you cut that out of your of your repertoire, what are you left with, and how do you get really resourceful with trying to integrate these flavors into a drink? Um, so to me, it was always sort of this like kind of like always in the back of my head, um, and. Uh, but still it wasn't something that you would kind of like consider seriously. It was just sort of like there if someone asked. Um, and then, uh, I inherited, I started working to, um, to, I was assisting Jimmy in with the food and wine cocktail book, which was an annual kind of compilation of, of cocktails from bartenders around the country. Um, and I went from being kind of an assistant to actually being like sort of the main, like editor you know if you will of the of the book and being the person who's gathering the recipes and sort of setting out the the shape of the book and for me like there there was always a mocktail section and I thought that was cool um because it was inclusive and it was you know it just opened up the the um the conversation to more people but it was it felt kind of a little afterthought -y. and then I was sort of curious to see like who like if you're, I was a bartender, you know, if I was approaching bartenders uh, to contribute recipes, like what would happen if I asked them to, con to contribute something non-alcoholic? Um, and initially it was very kind of uh, tepid resp <laughs> response, um, both from people who, there were people who were kind of known for non-alcoholic drinks at that point, kind of felt a little pigeonholed and people who weren't felt like it was kind of outside of their expertise. So what I actually ended up doing in a lot of these cases was taking these drinks and these like kind of quote with traditional regular cocktails that people had contributed and kind of I'm trying to understand what makes those drinks good and why, like what's the flavor components and then trying to sort of reverse engineer that with um, non-alcoholic ingredients. So you kind of have to get creative ways of replicating the heat and spice and complexity. Um, and so that sort of was another step towards towards where I am now. Um, and then I was the bar director for Momofuku. I worked for Momofuku for nine years, and I was the bar director for like around five of those. And um, funnily enough, the the people who were kind of the the most the, the of the in the group, the the place with the most demand for non-alcoholic drinks was Momofuku Co., which is the tasting menu restaurant. You know, that's very elaborate, very hard to get into. Uh, very expensive. It's a fine dining location. So that was sort of like when I started to work with them on their drink menu, they were like, we always get a lot of requests for NA drinks. Like, what can we do? And that was sort of the genesis of that um, kind of propagating throughout the group. And uh, what we saw was when you put non-alcoholic drinks on the menu beyond just like sparkling water or like a sort of basic soda, um, just more people spend money on, on drinks. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I, I was gonna get a glass of wine, but now I'm getting you know, something NA. It was like, I was just, I was just, people just weren't ready to have a cool drink and they were just probably gonna be okay with water. Um, so, it, you know, you 
could see just like in the numbers, like, oh, wow, there's like a whole segment of the population here that was left out of the conversation or someone didn't really think that they were even able to, to engage. Um, so that was like a really big validating point for me in terms of uh, this being a real thing. And that was like about five, maybe like not five years ago, like three, three or four when we started to get really serious about it. Yeah. Um, and I would like challenge bartenders at, at each of the restaurants, like, Hey, can we make these drinks? Can you make a cocktail that's has X, Y, and Z components, but also do a non-alcoholic version. Um, and it worked really well. And I think it was like a really great way just to be more inclusive. Um, and then as I was transitioning out of working for Momofuku, I was at home writing my cocktail book and I, and I got kind of antsy. And so what I, <laughs> what I did is I had this sort of library of botanicals in my house because that's just kind of person person I am and I got I got like sort of creative with like infusing these things like Chinese rhubarb and gentian and hibiscus into like cold brew infusions essentially and then kind of creating this like palette of of botanical extracts and then considering a kind of endpoint like oh I want something to taste like this I would then use those things to get to um, a certain flavor like I, I guess outcome um, and to me, like there's this important component of like, I think all drinks have to have some degree of acidity. They have to have some degree of bitterness and uh, complexity. And so you have to kind of use what you know to hit all those four or those maybe more than four, but to hit all those points. Um, and I feel like I kind of, you know, not to be too self-congratulatory, but I think that with, with Proto, I like kind of was able to, to, to like unlock that a little bit, um, and to create something that people could sort of have the same intellectual feeling with as, as something like a wine or a cocktail or Italian Amaro. Um, but there's a sort of the, a feature of it was that it didn't have alcohol. So you could just be open to more people um, and be open to more ways of getting to people um, and really reach people that weren't ready or that weren't like not ready, but they weren't this feeling included uh, and yeah. had kind of like written themselves off a little bit from from that culture uh so that's been really cool to see people just being like wow i never really like i didn't think that i could feel like an adult again when i'm drinking anything <laughs> like i have a diet coke in, a, in my in my purse or whatever as a backup yeah um and just being part of that is really cool even though i'm not like a sober person by any means it just for me was really important to to be as accessible as possible which is to me like the core of hospitality uh and just being able to welcome in as many people as you can yeah, you kind of touched on obviously several things, but a huge part of it being that it's inclusive, like the idea that the non-alcoholic portions of menus are having more options in the non-alcoholic category, botanical drinks, you know, whatever, non-alcoholic spirits, whatever that looks like. Um, it's it's inclusive and I think it's exciting to see that there, it feels like there's a lot of room for everybody to be in there. It doesn't feel like there's a like a monopoly on it. I feel like there's so many different styles in the category and like ready to drink is obviously, you know, growing, you know, exponentially quicker than a lot of other things. So to see all these different styles of non-alcoholic drinks, I think is, is exciting. And it makes also bartenders have to like try new things that they haven't had to try before. I, we were saying it in the last episode, I find creating non-alcoholic cocktails much more difficult than creating alcoholic cocktails yeah. because of those like balancing points you're talking about and having to get creative with how you discover that through, teas, syrups, you know, ingredients, whatever it might be. Um, when you said that you sort of noticed it in the last three or four years or so, and maybe this was specifically when you were at Momofuku, but did you feel like there was a generational difference in how people were ordering drinks? Was it, did you notice it like evolving with the sort of yoga, green juice, wellness marketing movement or? It's, it's hard to say because I think that there were sort of a few factors that were involved in this in this trend i think that um you know wellness has become sort of the new status symbol in a way and like this kind of true luxury is to kind of have this like very right. well-maintained physical body and it's no longer about like having a nice car or whatever a nice house it's kind of like what's your skincare routine like who's your personal trainer like all these sort of intangible uh kind of corporal corporeal things um became a lot more present for people um, I think also there was a just sort of natural transition from the, in the way that kind of culture 
sort of assimilates ideas. And there was like the fancy wine trends, you know, and that became very normalized in like the nineties and like the eighties. And then there was like the craft beer and you know, that's exploded and people kind of burned through that. And then I think the craft cocktail, craft spirits movement was sort of after that. And now that's sort of become stabilized in our society as a trend, like where's like what's next. So that there's a feeling of just sort of exploration um, that just led people out of sort of curiosity uh, to, to, to non-alcoholic uh, options. Um, and I think also there's just the greater kind of destigmatization of like mental health and uh, all those conversations and uh, the broader acceptance of people not drinking in society and like having it be less of kind of this really intense thing that like requires a kind of conversation where it's more, I think it's really becoming the, the, the choice to not drink for whatever reason and for however length of time is becoming less of like a, ooh, like, like that's a sad story, more of like an affirmative, like, wow, good for you. It's like, oh, I'm vegetarian or I'm vegan or I don't smoke cigarettes. You know, it's like kind of becoming that where yeah. it's sort of everyone's like, oh, cool, good for you. Um, and it's becoming a little bit more accepted and like a little bit more of a comfortable conversation, whereas before it's kind of like, you know, like, what's up? Like, why are you, why are yeah. you refusing this glass of wine? Right. Yeah. I think um, it's interesting as you, as we talk about like trends and shifting, especially um, in hospitality spaces, uh, when we've talked in the past about what hospitality spaces or what food spaces and what beverage spaces have served us, um, I think it's really interesting because hospitality spaces have always been a moment of reprieve, a little bit of escapism. There's always a little bit of escapism attached to how we consume alcohol specifically because you know it, it makes you feel good or it changes your state and um you know with with payment in alcohol you know dating far back or even just access to be able to kind of create your own spirit at home or whatever um it's all been very attached to uh, a moment of relaxation a moment of reprieve a moment of of, of escapism right. and it's lovely to see how that has folded into further um, with non-alcoholic beverages, you know, we can still experience craft, we can still experience intentional, really delicious beverages and not necessarily have to be consuming alcohol or feel a part of that space, yeah. um, you know, not consuming or consuming. So I think when we talk about when we talk about the trends, I think it's really important to kind of note how these new elements have, have played into that while keeping the the ideals that we hold so true with being able to like fucking take a break and go sit down <laughs> with something delicious, but not necessarily have it to have to be alcohol or, you know, have something that's very balanced yeah. and delicious. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really important to keep in mind because I think that there's it's very much like a coincidence that the alcohol and that sort of rest moment of respite happen together, but it doesn't necessarily have to. And something that was really validating in launching a non-alcoholic product that sort of sought to be included in uh, kind of like fancy, you know, wine cocktail culture was I had like a, a small like launch party in New York last fall, like, you know, RIP having parties. <laughs> um, and I was really nervous about it because we, we, like my the event planner was like, oh, we definitely need alcohol. Like we have to have it because like it's people are going to ask for it. It's going to be a lame event. If not, you know, like, or people are just going to kind of get bored after a while. And I was like, can it's you like, maybe just have some like <laughs> yeah. bottles of wine off to the side? And if people ask then we'll give it to them, but I'm not going to, that, that's about it. Um, and, you know, I think that the event planner was trying to do their job well, because that's just sort of what you do is you create, as many opportunities for people to enjoy themselves as possible. Um, so I was ready to be able to serve like rosé or whatever on, on the patio that we had. Um, and um, the, the, I think that from like a, you know, if you were just to have like a webcam of the party, it wouldn't have looked any different if it had been people had been drinking alcohol. I think people had the same level right. of relaxation and like mingling and like this feeling afterwards of just being able to connect with people um, and those the bottles of wine were untouched. I had to like take them home. <laughs> um, so it really is about if you're able to kind of you know have this moment where you're drinking something that kind of engages you intellectually, that is kind of beautiful, you know, from a you know both visually and also just like from a culinary perspective. That really is like eighty or ninety percent of the experience, and the alcohol is kind of 
incidental. And if, if really you're about like kind of the physiological feeling of alcohol, then you're just not kind of on board for that experience. It's something else. Like you're just kind of using it as a drug, which is fine. Um, but it's, it's been really fascinating to see how you think that these things are very tied together, but they're actually not. And it's cool to kind of break that a little bit. It's yeah. also, it feels appropriate during this time when people are all talking about missing being in bars again. And then mm -hmm. I remember just kind of thinking, like, what is it that we actually miss about being in a bar, though? Is it the right. actual, like, product or is it the cultural sort of surroundings? And, uh, well, for me, I think it's both. But I will say yeah. that I think I miss, I think I just miss drinking whatever it is that I'm drinking, but with people that I mm -hmm. enjoy being around. And I miss... Um, even like, I wouldn't even call it nostalgia, but I miss sitting at a bar stool. Like I just miss sitting across the bar from somebody. Mm -hmm. And um, I was telling my partner this, I even miss like the terrible guests. Like I kind of missed having something to come home and complain about. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I'm so distant from it all now. And so it's, uh, I think it's interesting to, when we talk about like drinking in general, that like the, the norm is drinking alcohol and like we have to create a sector for non-alcoholic drinking, even though, it's just like odd to think about that when alcohol becomes the mainstream, but non-alcoholic stuff. Like you said before, yeah. people ask like, oh, are you not drinking for a reason? Or why on earth would you do that? And so <laughs> I think like yeah. normalizing that conversation yeah. is a huge part of hospitality that we're seeing sort of happening. I think it's happening at a really slow rate. I still see bartenders having a really hard time with, uh, with getting totally on board with like having an equally craft and, and well curated non-alcoholic menu. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to a lot of it, because um, Sarah touched on this too, with like alcohol is like very valuable, you know, both like kind of materially and also I think to people's like, you know, experience. So it's like when you're offering something like, like what I'm doing, but sort of is in the same price range as something that has alcohol, people are kind of like, well, why does it, why does oh, yeah. it cost, why does it cost so much? And you're like, well, actually right. like a lot, like non-alcoholic drinks are actually harder to make than alcohol drinks. Like non-alcoholic grape juice was like an innovation you know, a hundred years ago. Right. Um, so it's, yeah, they're trying to ex explain to people like the value is, isn't really in the, the kind of chemical ethanol that's in the drink. It's really about everything else. It's like how, like getting it literally to you is probably what you're paying the most for. Totally. Um, uh, so it's, it's been, it's, it's hard. Yeah. I think there's a lot of resistance to it. Um, and I think also from like a business perspective, people, you know, it's like a little cynically to say, but like if you have one drink, you're more likely to have another one and you know, another one yeah. and maybe you buy food. And so it's like, there's this commercial like kind of incentive, which is not necessarily the greatest thing um, where you're kind of, you feel a little gypped if someone's like not ordering, a, you know, something with like gin or vodka. Right. Yeah. I, um, I when we when we're talking about like kind of the generational differences if we saw that um especially with your work I think um I'm thinking about my grandparents my grandparents aren't big drinkers my grandpa actually doesn't drink I think a lot of um folks that are a little bit older my grandparents included have traumas around alcoholism in their family and I think you know overconsumption in minority groups, specifically black, um, indigenous, um, and, uh, and brown immigrants. I think that is something that's very rampant. And I think I wanted, I bring this up because my grandpa came into a craft cocktail bar that I was working. I used to work at the Violet Hour. And at the Violet Hour, there was a big menu with a lot of different non-alcoholic cocktails available. And um, it was very interesting to see him interact with a place that like, you know, he's not privy to going to a bar because he doesn't drink. And, um, uh, and him coming in and having that availability. And I was like, Grandpa, I can make you a cocktail. You know what I mean? You don't have to order an iced tea or, you know, your Diet Coke. I can actually make you something craft and you can participate in this space in a new way. And seeing those kind of barriers break down for him where he was like, oh, I can sit at the bar. I can chat with my granddaughter who is bartending and she has something available for me, something that's yummy and delicious, maybe a little bit too much sugar, but like, you know, for him. <laughs> but um, to see him be able to participate in that space was really lovely. And um, I think it speaks to maybe what even is more available for generations that, you know, aren't heavy drinkers. People that are old don't need to be drinking a lot of alcohol. And that's just my personal tea. But like, you know what I mean? With all that health and, and taking care of yourself as you age, um, it's, been, it's been great to see my grandparents and other older 
uh, family members be able to participate. And I think opening that up, and like you said, um, you know, making that space inclusive is really, really crucial here, whether it be attached to generational trauma or attached to just a personal choice or something that's not even a factor, right? I don't want to drink today, but I do want to come hang out with my friend that serves behind a bar and I want to sit in jail. We're also seeing it, I think, much more popular in in our general generation too. I see so many more people being like grateful to have drinks available to them that don't get them like drunk from the get go. I think it was like it started <laughs> off with this sort of resurgence of like of spritzes and the sort of low ABV portion of menus, and then it eventually people were just like, I'm also fine with having no alcohol at all as long as it tastes good and. And I think the value is a huge, I like that we're talking about that because when I was at Cindy's and we were putting on non-alcoholic cocktails, I think the biggest pushback was when, um, oh, I don't know if I should say that. I'll just say it. But the person before me that was putting on the non-alcoholic cocktails was getting pushed back because it didn't feel like the value matched what was being charged for it. And so I think a big part of it when I was getting into the program was okay, we have to make them more complex. We have to make them feel like cocktails. And they also kind of have to be like, they can't be things that you can just chug so quickly. Like if it feels right. like something you're able to sit down so quickly, you don't feel like it's worth paying the, I mean, in like Chicago on Michigan Avenue, I think there were 12 bucks for the non-alcoholic drinks, which is like, I'm, I would consider it to be a lot for a non-alcoholic yeah. cocktail. Um, and a lot of it was like the rooftop bar mentality of charging more, but um, which is another episode I think but uh <laughs> but the the idea of value associated with even if it's just like the verbiage of how it's written on the menu it makes a big difference how it's served to you um I like the idea of also like non-alcoholic ingredients that are launched have to be creative of their preservation methods too you know yeah. you don't have alcohol to rely on to give you the longest shelf life so to be like thoughtful of the fact that there's a lot of cost that goes into the creativity around how these you know items are made it definitely has an impact on on how they're going to be received by masses. Um, Kasira, do you want to give us a quick recap of where we're at in the episode um, for everybody and then we'll move on? Yeah, absolutely. So um, for anyone that's lost their place, we we're talking about the evolution of drinking, a little bit of you know, drinking trends, how we integrate non-alcoholic or how non-alcoholic um, beverages have entered hospitality spaces. Um, we are joined here by John, who used to work at Momofuku and introduced, um, you know, non-alcoholic beverages into their beverage program and saw a different variety of, of value associated with people being able to participate in that space, especially with like food pairings and stuff, being able to have that still craft experience and um, move through that. We talked a little bit about um, a little bit about generational divides um, you know who is drinking um, you know the normalization and the inclusivity of having non-alcoholic beverages um, present on menus and just the value associated with with crafting those kind of beverages um, so as we shift from that let's talk a little bit about um, how different generations, have defined drinking and consumption. Um, what is the norm? You know what I mean? What has led us to this point that we are here? And David, you um, you mentioned a little bit about the 1950s. Do you want to talk about kind of what influences, <laughs> what influences was, yeah. we see from like health and being aware of what we consume there? <laughs> yeah, I was talking about it from my personal my personal experiences, but uh, no, I was just mentioning that. Tell us like, about the fifties. <laughs> yeah, that I love the idea that when we talk about wellness movement, it's super associated to like contemporary marketing of like uh, personal body goals and social media platforms that are dedicated to um, essentially make me feel terrible that I don't do enough for my body and my health, but, uh, and it works. It's like super effective because obviously it's a huge market and it's, uh, I mean, we can get into a whole conversation. We kind of did last week about the capitalism around wellness. Um, but I like the idea of also reminding ourselves that like essentially in the fifties and sixties during the anti-smoking campaigns, that was like the first real sort of step into what wellness movement looked like. It was definitely a different entity then, and it was done much more uh, as far as like magazine, you know, advertisements and billboards rather than like what we see now where it's in your face at all times. Um, it's like when your iPhone tells you how much screen time you've had this week compared to last week, and you're like, <laughs> I don't, I didn't, I don't 
think I asked for any of this information, which is like, <laughs> but it is sort of like a constant reminder of like what you are and not doing, which is just interesting. And so I was just sort of bringing up the 50s and 60s before as an element of how wellness started in maybe a different generation and how our generation really associates wellness with like what you said earlier, John, like mental and emotional health and how that is connected to other elements. I just get worried that we associate so many things to one word and we're like, are you participating in wellness? Well, no, because I'm not like, I'm not doing all the things that are on the checklist, which is like daily, you know, uh, daily sitting yoga session or meditation, eating the way that we should be. I'm kind of fascinated by wellness being this overarching term that is really unspecific and really yeah. expensive. Yeah. Right. And tied to consumption. Exactly. I feel like, you know, the capital, like capitalism appropriates and repackages stuff to, to sell it to us. So a moment of like, you know, uh, how we take care of ourselves associated and translated in hospitality spaces, especially with beverage spaces. It's like, okay, you know, earn your booze is, is great. But like, you know what I'm saying? Like work out and then, and then drink or, you know, yeah. take care of yourself <laughs> right. and then have a cocktail or, you know what I mean? Go out to eat and have something very bougie. And I think as, as we, especially with what is, what is repackaged and then sold to us, we love fancy fucking cocktails. We love craft cocktails. That's what's popping off. And like you said earlier, John, like that's kind of stabilized now. So what's the next trend? Um, and I don't, I don't know if I want to use the word trend, but like, you know, what's the next step of something that we can market? I think, you know, CBD infusions, THC stuff um, in our beverages, non-alcoholic beverages that give us the same oomph, this is delicious. You know what I'm saying? And that's very that's very marketable and very cute, but it is aligned with a moment of, you know, how do we really participate in these spaces, but still keep ourselves cute and healthy and maybe not dehydrated or what mm -hmm. have you, regardless of what the choices are, wellness is being um, something that can be personified through how we eat or drink. Um, but also just a very broad term too, yeah. right? And Kasira, you just mentioned it, so that's a good transition, but the idea that, um, like what's the next step and how this category is now evolving. John, Proto is, it is ready to drink. Like you can't yeah. enjoy it just chilled or over ice, but you also, it can also be used as an ingredient for definitely more ingredients to be added to. Yes. Were you launching it with the idea that it is like a ready to drink yeah. product because that is also expanding pretty quickly? That whole Yeah, category. I mean, I, I did it, I did it because for me, like as a person who my kind of culinary background was creating cocktails. So for me, like when it leaves my hand, it needs to be finished. So that was a sort of my natural inclination to just create something that when I handed it off to someone, this was like sort of the, the most accurate representation of like the image that I had in my head of how I wanted something to taste. And right. so it sort of goes back to hospitality as well, where it's like, I want to do all the work for you and make this an experience for you just to have that sort of where I'm taking care of you and telling you that something is like, this is easy for you and you can bring this to your friend's house or you can drink it by yourself or you can do whatever you want with it. But this to me represents a complete work, like a complete thought. Um, sort of like a difference between like selling sheet music and selling a single, you know, it's like, <laughs> there's a different kind of thing there. Um, and the, um, the idea that it's also that you know they, these products are also used as uh, you know, ingredients is obviously something that was always some I, something I was aware of because as a cocktail person, I, if I see something that's like a drinkable liquid, I'm like, well, how can I use this in a drink and maybe even like non-drinkable liquids as well? Mm -hmm. um, so that always like was was important to me as well as just to you know going back to the idea of options where. Um, you know, the Remington Spritz that I have, it, that's the first one I developed. It's meant to kind of be perfect out of the bottle with, uh, you know, it's, it's sparkling, um, you know, that the acid balance, the, everything, everything is there. Um, and then with the Ludlow Red, which is still, you know, it kind of has a feeling like a little bit of a multi-hybrid of like creme de cassis, red wine, vermouth, you know, Amaro, um, right. which, you know, is 
I think is a little bit more mixable, you know, if you consider the two versus each other. Um, and actually the Ludlow Red and Champagne is really great, to get, <laughs> really great together. Um, so that's always been something I, I really wanted to be able to include. But to me, it's also important as a way of defining myself in contrast to some of these other non-alcoholic uh, you know, brands, um, not because of any like good or bad value judgment, but just because I wanted to, to, to be unique is that this is, this is ready to drink. This is done. This is a complete product that you don't need to add, you know, all this stuff to, or, or, or kind of work to get to the point where, where it's drinkable. Yeah. Uh, and then Kasira, you mentioned CBD and THC, obviously taking its like new wave of drinking too, with like CBD infused sodas. And I, I like the ones that I've tasted are mostly from Dram Apothecary um, out of Colorado, out of Colorado. And pretty sure. But Dram Apothecary does like a whole line of CBD sodas and they had different flavors. And I was like, I'm, I'm generally like the bartender that rolls their eyes at like CBD bitters and every, like when I see it on a menu, it's like a surefire way for me not to order it. Cause I just, I don't trust it yet. I'm like very, very, yeah. I'm like super skeptical of using something that was like not meant to be drank to start doing it. But the sodas were good. I trust it more in a non-alcoholic way. I don't trust how it interacts with alcohol, I think, in a drink. And especially since it's not like fully understood yet, I think it's interesting. And then the other category that I'm fascinated by is the euphorics category and mm -hmm. the sort of expansion with that. So like Kin and Recess mm -hmm. and all these uh, products that, are, that have, have launched in the last year or two that essentially give you this euphoric sensation that is similar to alcohol. Um, I think what's unfortunate, and I'm not like... I'm not going to say which ones are, are and which ones are not, but like a lot of them, unfortunately, are trying to cover up really like rough tasting ingredients um, like ashwagandha and kava and shisandra berry that are not like tasty ingredients where our palates are actually much more in tune with gentian and like bitter roots and herbs. We're like, we're getting more and more comfortable with, but I don't think we're ready for these like overwhelmingly earthen uh, ingredients and I think unfortunately like in order to mask them uh, a lot of these companies don't have like a bartender or somebody who is experienced with like drink mixing on the team to launch these these products and so it's interesting to watch now this new surgence of like the euphoria euphoric category within non-alcoholic drinking and seeing that that hits a whole new uh, group of like a whole new demographic that are super into having the feeling and like the relaxation of socializing but without the alcohol and without the hangover which is like a lot of what we're talking about is missing that cultural aspect you like the value of it the value of it um, doing something to your body and to your sort of comfort level in a social setting it's I I love what it does for me when I go out and so I think like knowing that there's now a category that's coming out and growing pretty rapidly that's dedicated to that, I think is, it's interesting too. It's funny because it's like, at, the more that I'm seeing what you're describing, like you know, recess and the CBD and the, the tinctures at the bar for a non-alcoholic, but maybe something that's a little bit more euphoric, as I'm seeing those things emerge, the dork historian in me is like, we were doing that you know, 2000 years ago, but it just was of a distilled product, right? You know what I mean? We're, we're taking bitters and, and having our little tinctures uh, to make us feel better or for medicines or for, you know, little ailments there. And it's funny to see that kind of reemerge, um, repackaged, right? And, and remarketed to us as something that is available um, because that knowledge is, that knowledge is old, right? Um, infusing herbs and and things that have antioxidants and stuff into fermented stuff is old. Distilling, you know, elixirs and stuff is old. But to see, and I mean old is in like, you know, 4,000 years, but um, to see that kind of emerge in a new way now is interesting. And bartenders and folks behind the bar, um, bar managers and barbacks making syrups and stuff, um, exploring kind of shit that looks like alchemy to me. You know what I mean? And it's cool to kind of see that, see that happen. Um, do we want to talk a little bit about verbiage? Yeah, this is my favorite, my favorite conversation because I feel like it always <laughs> gets so many people riled up and I just think it's so silly. But the general like erasure of mocktail and then moving forward to like the new words, uh, right. erasure is a strong word for that. <laughs> Yeah, Erase strong. It. 
the movements to end mocktail. No, I'm fascinated by the general, like, and I think it, it comes back to a conversation about normalizing and destigmatizing, like, sober drinking in bar settings. And I think it comes with, um, I do think it comes with verbiage. I think, like, the biggest way that I've seen maybe bars try to normalize it and, and make their bartenders feel more excited to push it is by making it read a lot more interesting and make it read less uh, childlike. Mm -hmm. And so um, <laughs> I'm just gonna ask, I'm curious, what is your, John, what's your opinion on like the verbiage around non-alcoholic drinks? Do you care? Do you not? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I have, I have uh, a lot to say, I guess, on that. Like I, going back to my time at Food and Wine Magazine with the, the chapter you know, was called mocktails. Like, that's just what it was called. Um, and that was really the only kind of vocabulary people had for it, you know, say back in like 2010. Yeah. Um, and I always just was uncomfortable with it because I think it just kind of signified like very Shirley Temple, yes. sort of childish, very sweet, um, kind of like silly, frivolous drinks. And it's hard to know whether or not, like how, where that attachment comes from, whether or not it's like the idea of the word like mocktail. Um, being kind of cutesy and mock being kind of this like trying to pull a fast one on on someone and like kind of deceptive versus just the drinks that were associated with that word at the time uh, so I kind of like come and go with the word mocktail where I'm like do I hate it because I'm kind of just like a snooty jerk or do I hate it because it's just kind of a bad word or should I just get over it and just not not care so I think I'm more like an over it kind of you know pendulum swing moment right now um but to me, my goal and my sort of like mission is to make the word cocktail expand to more, to, to really anything that's a mixed drink. And that's what I yes. do. That's what I talk about in my book where I try to sort of peel away a lot of orthodoxy of, for drink making and like um, <clears throat> show people like, look, like this is not some like super arcane you know, thing that is very inaccessible to you. It's actually things that you do every day in your life that you can apply to something maybe a little bit more complicated. So like I always, you know, in my book, I say like, well, if you make your coffee and you have like an intentional amount of sugar or milk or whatever you put into it, like you're actually making a cocktail. Like you're combining more than two or more things into a drink and you're making, you're making a kind of a culinary choice and then you're using your knowledge and skills or whatever to enact that choice. So for me, the word cocktail is like, really expansive and i yeah. always want to cocktail to capture everything and then it just to um you know just when you talk about what's in this cocktail you're like oh well this has gin and this has you know whatever and, and the the conversation is not so much about like oh, there's no alcohol it's just like alcohol cocktails are a kind of, of a cocktail so i think that's where i would love for things to end up and i think that it's kind of moving in that direction i think there's I've had a lot, some experiences with, you know, bars that, um, you know, I've talked to and, uh, you know, beverage directors and stuff like that, people who put menus together and they try to put a menu where it's just cocktails and then there's just a few kind of non-alcoholic drinks like peppered in there and it was just kind of a disaster and people either didn't realize they were non-alcoholic and ordered them and they were like kind of felt That's swindled that, yeah. when they got them or the people who were looking for any drinks couldn't find them. So it was just like this, it was kind of a mess. And I think that as a culture, we're not really ready for that yet. Um, but I think it's, it's getting more towards that. And I think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that there just wasn't any awareness and there wasn't a lot to talk about when it wasn't, you know, with, with you know, if it wasn't a gin or a craft whiskey, you know, there's like, you know, if there's one product that's a non-alcoholic spirit or whatever, then you're not really talking about it in yeah. the kind of same level. But now that there's like this whole ecosystem of, of, of ingredients that are non-alcoholic that are craft, um, it's becoming a little bit more, more normalized. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's tough. Kasira, do you have any opinions on verbiage? Um, I think, you know, the first time that I was introduced to non-alcoholic cocktails was at Lost Lake and, uh, they were titled like no tipple cocktails. Um, and it was, you know, after the large section of tropical cocktails and large format cocktails, and then there'd be the no tipple um, cocktails. I don't even know what that means, to be honest with you. 
but I do like the idea of shifting away from mocktails because I feel like the connotation behind that, like you're saying, John, is like, it's very like Shirley Temple and sugary, you know what I mean? Or it's like an Italian ice, you know, et cetera. So I think it, expanding the word cocktails, I definitely am 100% behind that. I don't prefer and I don't use the word mocktail because it, like I'm saying, it kind of gives that air of like mocking. I don't know. And um, I don't think it needs to be a separate category, right? We can still, like we're saying, have a craft experience, have intention behind what's in our beverage and it not have to include um, alcohol. But like, you're, like you mentioned, like having that folded into a menu where we know that people really don't read the ingredients of a cocktail if they mm -hmm. don't know exactly what that ingredients is. So like if I have Ginnipy and this and that, it's like people are gonna be like, what the hell is in this list? <laughs> that looks like a gin drink, I'll take it. You know what I mean? And if they gloss over the fact that there isn't an actual alcoholic um, element to it, I think that can be um, misleading for people that don't read menus. And that's a lot of people, right? Um, so <laughs> I like the idea of expanding the cocktail, um, you know, the context of cocktails, including non-alcoholic cocktails, or just saying non-alcoholic cocktails is kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah, I, I, my thought on it is that I used to care a lot and I care less and less as I, yeah. as I go, because I think I started caring when I feel like who I consider to be like cool bartenders, like sort of made me care about it. And I thought, well, this is like, I, you know, when you're like first starting out, like a big goal of mine was to be like well-received and like well-liked by my other bartender friends and colleagues. And I wanted to, I didn't want to be a loser. And so I was like, yeah, if we're against mocktails, me too. I, I'll tattoo it, whatever yeah. I need to do, like right. make me cool. And I think that, that I, when, when we were at Cindy's, the menu originally said mocktail and then we changed it to spirit free. And I changed it to Spirit Free because of somebody who I like really looked up to sort of like coined this term. I thought it was really elegant and I liked the whole concept of it being like really elegant and almost a little bougie. And then for after two years of doing it, we ended up changing it because people constantly had questions about it. And they're like, it's like, what are you talking? Like people just didn't understand it and they weren't grasping it totally. And then I was like trying to ask myself, and this is after I became much more comfortable with my own like not having to prove myself to people kind of moment. I think I stopped caring so much about the word and I was like, oh, I don't think I ever really cared about this word. I just sort of went with it because that's what I felt like the industry was moving towards. And I think now I'm at a point where like, I'm, I'm actually really into what Lost Lake does. I think no tipple is creative and it works for them. You know, like I think if their whole menu is already like the way it's designed and the artwork is so um, tropical and it is so, like the font is kind of all over the place. It's all very I mean, like, flamboyant. It, like, yeah. It's like in line with that. And I mm -hmm. think that like no tipple works because they have so many sections of the menu for different cocktails and I'm like all right like whatever go for it. I think there's not like a one word fits all for the category. Yeah. That's why I think like some bars um, and I think probably like really well established craft cocktail bars really could get away with just it being cocktails and then like having that conversation with guests yeah. and explaining it. Um, for high volume, I think it's very different. I think like high volume, especially rooftop bars, it sort of needs to be like really clear and, it, and it's gotta be like really obvious what that category is. Um, Cause I don't think people are willing to take the time to, to fully read the menu. They're looking for buzzwords that they like. Yeah. I think it's the same thing with, I'm like really anti the words syrup and liqueur on a menu. I just, it like gives me <laughs> anxiety when I read it. And so I, I think of it like the same way. I think like for certain bars, it's like, I get it. It's like what they want to do and it works for that clientele. And I think like as more bars sort of develop, the words change. My cat back there? Yeah. <laughs> cool. I don't even have a cat. <laughs> so weird. Um, <laughs> so with that being said, do we want to switch over to some rapid fire before we wrap up the episode? Sure. Cool. Sure. Uh, take, is it me or is it you? I'll do it. All right. Um, so, John, these are for you. And these are just quick get to know you questions. Uh, if you were to describe your 2020 in three words, what would they be? <laughs> this is still my favorite question. I don't know why. <laughs> Stupid. Wow. It's the easiest question in the world. You know what I mean? Nothing's nothing's going down. Things aren't crazy. <laughs> I kind of want to say stuck at home. Okay. That's good. That's what comes to I mind. I like that. I feel like there, because, yeah. Or a lot going on. 
<laughs> well, it's a lot. It's a lot. A lot is two uh, words. <laughs> I know. I didn't. I didn't want to be the person, but there we go. Uh, have you been binge watching anything? Um, yeah, actually, um, I've been watching back seasons of Survivor. Um, Survivor's not the one with Joe Rogan as the host. Oh, that's God, no. No, that's Jeff <laughs> <I> Probst. <know. laughs> Joe Rogan would be hard, hard to watch for me. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, but although it's funny because it's like there are these things that was, you know, that all this iconography in Survivor that's like extremely problematic and like very colonial and like kind of racist. And it's like, wow, 2006 was not that long ago, but also like it's like a lifetime ago. And so in terms of like what's acceptable, um, right. in mainstream yes. society, so it's fascinating. Right. Yeah. I've been re-watching old seasons of America's Next Top Model because yes. like seasons one through 14 are on Amazon Prime. I'm like, oh, I'm just like going through it and I was like, I forgot <laughs> they did entire blackface episodes. Like, this show this is-, is not that old and like, yeah. it's so problematic, but yeah. it's so hard to stop watching. It's so good. Um, all right, what is something that people would be surprised to know about you? Um, it's not, and I've, I've talked about this before, but like I, I was, in my past life, I was, uh, I actually investigated allegations of police misconduct uh, against the New York City Police Department. Wow. So kind of was like an after, after college uh, sort of, you know, like not throwaway job, but kind of like whatever the job you got out of college, I was hired by the city. Um, so I spent two years as an investigator at a badge. You know, I interviewed cops at 7.30 in the morning every day. Um, and I kind of didn't think a lot about it until, um, you know, the last couple of months, it's sort of become a lot more, um, it's a bigger part of my <laughs> recollection. Wow. Um, Is yeah. New York State a state where those records are public, or as an investigator, did you have access to those in a different well, way? I had access to them as like, a, as like our database. Uh, they weren't okay. public, but they were ma- recently made public by, um, um, ProPublica, which is like a independent journalism uh, thing, and so they just actually just that their database was released like I think this week or last week, which is pretty wild to me. Um, from a structural perspective, the agency is like very well intentioned. It was um, started by David Dinkins, and there was a huge backlash to it. Like the cops basically were doing the same thing they're doing now, where they're like threatening to not police, and they're you know, making very racist statements and. Um, not a lot's changed in those 30 years. Um, and the agency itself doesn't have a lot of um, independent ability to oversight, to oversee the police. Um, so it was a little very bleak uh, kind of two years of, of, of uh, kind of witnessing all this stuff, but seeing how institutionally challenging it was to actually hold anybody accountable because there were just so many layers of, of resistance that it was basically just like the wheel spinning. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting. I got to see a lot of New York City. (laughs) Got to see a lot of the city. Have you lived in New York your whole life? Uh, No. Uh, I was born in Manhattan, so that's so. There's that, and I grew up in like Connecticut, uh, but I've been quote back since uh, 2001 when I went to college here. So very nice. Uh, Last question from Rapid Fire: What do you do for self care and relaxation? Gosh, um, I exercise a lot. Good for you. Um, and I also have like, uh, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Yeah, I actually really enjoy exercising, uh, which I feel very lucky to to have. Um, yeah, and video games. There you go. Nice. And then, do you? What is your process of choosing lipsticks to buy? What Ooh. color? I I want. I just want. I want to know everything. We want to know. Oh wow. Um, I feel like I'm like threatening, like every day I'm like threatening to start like a lipstick YouTube channel. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, one of my friends. You, I, you I, need one more project right now. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm just like, I have nothing to do. Um, I went on a friend's uh, IG Live, Julia Bainbridge. It was actually about non-alcoholic drinks. And she was like, can you just show me your lipstick drawer? And I had never seen like another person's lipstick collection. So I had no context for it. So I was like, here. And she was like, what the hell, John? Like that. <laughs> too many um so for me what did i do i i was like you know um a big fan of going to like fancy department stores and buying like you know chanel or whatever because it was sort of this nice accessible 
luxury item that's like still expensive but not like a four thousand dollar t-shirt you know it's like you know like a forty dollar lipstick is something that's like nice and you can treasure it and it's like chanel and it's cute so i would i did i was i have a couple of chanel pat mcgrath i also like a lot um there is a uh brand called lime crime that makes sort of like more like wacky stuff um Givenchy she has a couple of lip stains that like literally don't come off and are kind of like it's like a problem you're like it's been two days <laughs> I can I help. Um, so yeah a lot of it's about like finding a, a formulation because it's like like it's actually the cosmetics world and I think that you know spirits and you know whatever ready to drink uh, world is very similar in that like so much depends on formulation and even if it's like the brand that you like and the color that you like if there's like something wrong with like the way that it the texture or the way that it comes off or the way that it stays on like you have to like like you know hang on to it for dear life <laughs> and like buy backups because you never know when they can like switch their manufacturing and you're just like you're you're screwed so for me it's like about finding one thing and then like going really hog wild into like their their catalog and making sure that i'm like so for anyone that's have... listening oh i'm sorry no go ahead for anyone that's listening john has a beautiful lavender color on and um i used to have oh, yeah. a very similar lavender color by mac um i'm not allowed to shop at mac anymore but they had a really lovely color that i had for a while um let's shift gears into the pill spill the tea section um questions from folks that tune into anthropological for you um first question we touched on it a little bit before uh what do we actually miss about going to bars for, for me? me, I don't miss anything, but oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's because I'm a tired, worn out, raggedy bitch that is tired of serving problematic people, but. I miss it. Fair. I miss that exact thing. <laughs> <laughs> don't know why. What do you miss, John? Um, I, I, I miss like the, the theater of it. And um, as someone who was like worked kind of like front of house like as a bartender and then be transitioned to like more you know um like management and like planning and structure of how service works and like design um it's i love going to a restaurant and just sort of sitting there and like watching and like kind of figure out how their staff works like who's the captain who's the manager who's the busser who's the hardest worker here what are the sections like doing the like the like reverse engineering of a structure of a restaurant was always is always really cool for me. Um, mm -hmm. And even if the service is like quote bad, it's always fascinating to like see why mm -hmm. and understand like okay like yeah. So that the the the, the dorky inside baseball stuff is what I miss. <laughs> I miss that about New York for sure. Every time I traveled and and getting to sit down. Um, at a bar and experience a different menu, same layout, you know what I mean, um, is definitely a little, you know, it's very luxurious. Travel, mm -hmm. new menu, new cocktails, yeah. new ingredients, um, new staff, you know, all of that. I love that. Um, second question, last question. Uh, how is your book, um, Drink What You Want, different from other cocktail books? Uh short answer or a long answer uh, <laughs> I'll give more in, in between like I I think that for me the the book started out um I didn't really know what I wanted to write necessarily but as a someone as for my experience working at the you know, PDT which is one of the you know fanciest you know cocktail bars or in the world and then there's like the all the different types of places that I opened for Momofuku I opened 10 restaurants for the group and some of them were like pretty kind of almost divey and like very fast service and like, you know, free pouring and, you know, fancy, not fancy, but like I had like trained people how to make like a rum and coke. And like, how do you apply the same kind of uh, like thinking and philosophy to like a free poured rum and coke versus like a very elaborate, like the career, you know, variation. And so it was really about opening up to that up to people and showing people that like, actually this isn't that complicated. Like it's complicated, but like you couldn't get into it in a lot more easily than a lot of people think. And to me, there's like a sort of arms race in the cocktail book industry to get really nerdy and very erudite and a lot of like very fine detailed knowledge, which to me is cool, but also it's like very gatekeepery and kind of elitist. And so for me, I was like, actually, it's just sort of a fuck you to, <laughs> to a lot of people that I have like really respect. So I kind of wanted to do a book that ruffled feathers 
from those people and kind of showed people that had no experience with cocktails or bartending or spirits that like, hey, this is this is something you can actually get get into on a weeknight. Like, you know, people very rarely are say that they can't make a salad because they're not, you know, Jose Andres. You know, it's like that. There's, you know, there's like a, <laughs> you can you can cook for yourself without being a chef, but you can also make things for yourself without being a bartender. So, um, it really is different because it 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 breaks it way 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 all the way down. Um, yeah. And also, I tried to to put a lot of myself into the book, um, and it's very kind of autobiographical. And it's like it's to me a book first, and then a cocktail book, a cocktail instruction manual second. I was gonna say when I read it because I I don't know you other than like surrounding this episode, but I immediately was like, oh, this seems to have like a whole lot of personality in it. Like yeah. I think I could read it, and I hope you take this as a compliment. But I I was like, oh, there's like a, a big splash of like queerness throughout the book oh, without yeah. it like without the book being it's not like a it's not necessarily a queer cocktail book, but it exactly. like, as like reading it, I was like, oh, this is that is what I'm like gathering from it. And I've never seen that in a cocktail book before. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, I'm glad you noticed that. Cause that's definitely, that was super important to me to be like very authentic, but not to be like, you know, waving the gay pride flag everywhere because I, I, yeah, I think that's wonderful to do obviously, but um, it's about like sort of presenting an entire person to someone that that's to beyond just like um, something that can be reduced to like a word or a label. Um, and it, I think it actually makes it really, um, I'm hoping it's like a little subversive and that like, I think that maybe people who aren't a queer audience would, would be, would, would feel comfortable reading it and then get totally. just exposed to like a sort of total idea of a person. Um, but you know, who's not in a, in a closet <laughs> by, by any <laughs> means. Um, yeah. So that was a really cool balance for me. And, you know, I think I got really lucky with an editor personally and also uh, like a publisher that was like very much on board uh, for for something like this. Um, and it was good. Yeah. So. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So as we wrap, um, John, I want to give room for anyone that wants to get more information about what you do, maybe purchase your book or, or see the kind of um, stuff that you're working on. How can people kind of digest what you've got going on? Yeah, um, I'd say probably um, there's a few different vectors. Uh, my Instagram is not always like super on brand, but it has it's sort of like my central online identity and that's JND3001. So it's J John Nichols DeBerry is my middle name, 3001 um, on Instagram. Uh, and that has links in my bio to everything that I'm, that I'm working on um, Instagram for my um for proto is drink proto all one word and then the um, the restaurant workers community foundation uh, is also on instagram um and that's rwcf usa uh but if you go to my my bio everything else everything is there so that's a good place to start amazing well thank you we're going to do what we do and wrap it there um thank you again john for joining us this is a great conversation yeah, i feel you. like there's a lot of things to kind of unpack there um especially with normalizing normalizing um non-alcoholic beverages and making shit craft making shit cute um thank you again yeah thank you bye everybody